0: He was in prison, this prophet, John. Is there any place any of us would rather not be? And if anything, first century prisons were less pleasant places to pass the time than 21st century ones were, are. So this one who had stood on the banks of the Jordan... And spoken to great crowds from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond. The one who had told them told all Israel. He who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He was held captive now. And he remembered the day when a man came to him from Nazareth asking to share in his baptism of repentance and commitment to God, the baptism that he offered all God's people. And something about this man told John, no, I need to be baptized by you. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus had insisted and John had baptized him. And there were signs on that occasion that he was God's chosen one. And now, through this man, God was going to bring about all that he had promised his people, all those promises recorded in the prophets and the scriptures of Israel. And then, John was arrested. He was apprehended by Herod Antipas, for speaking against administration policy, for speaking treason, in fact. And he was thrown into first century Judea's equivalent of Guantanamo, a place reserved for enemies of the state. And in prison, left to rot, John waited, and he wondered. It's something people do, isn't it, in in different areas of life? We pin our hopes on some one person. We put everything on him or her. And we wait for our expectations to be fulfilled or dashed. If you Google the phrase, the hopes of a nation, don't do it now, I know you can. But if you do... I find a lot of stories about sports. I grew up near Houston. There was a team. Some of you, some of you will remember it called the Oilers. There was a song uh, that celebrated the Oilers, and for a few glorious seasons, there was Earl Campbell and Bum Phillips, and we placed our hopes on them, and we waited, and they almost delivered. And then one day, Bud Adams, whose name I still cannot utter without a bit of bitterness, pray for me, he took the Oilers away and took them to Tennessee, and I'm not sure what happened to them after that. People do it when the Olympics, or as recently the World Cup, come around. All the hopes of a nation settle on a team often on the shoulders of one player, one competitor it happens in politics too in this country especially it happens every four years that everybody looks for leadership to one person who is going to write everything that's gone wrong and, and fix every mistake that's been made and we each have to decide whether those hopes are fulfilled or dashed in our experience most gravely it happens perhaps in time of war When a general leads an army in a campaign that will determine the fate of a nation or even the world, and all eyes turn to him, and the world holds its breath, and more often than not, the world is disappointed. So, John, who had pinned all his hopes on Jesus, languishes in prison. And it appears the confidence that he once had in Jesus' wavers. Prison will do that to you, so I hear. And so John wonders, is this the one who is to come? Or must we look for another after all? We shouldn't blame John too much, if we find ourselves reading the Bible and feeling superior to the people who fail in the stories of scripture or who are uncertain or whose faith wavers, we might look again and compare our record to theirs. We shouldn't blame John, I think. Jesus was an unlikely candidate for the office of Messiah. He was a child of a working class family. He had no special connections, no entry to the halls of power. He didn't go to an Ivy League school or whatever the equivalent was in first century Judea. He was the kind of person that, if you were writing a history of Israel in the first century, you might well pass over, you might well miss in your research, even. There were plenty of folks willing to fill the role of Messiah in the time of Jesus. Luke tells us about a couple of them in Acts chapter 5. Theudas and Judas, two leaders who gathered a following and directed it against the physical enemies of Israel as they saw them. And both of them were put down. That's one reason, probably, that Jesus and his ministry, and John and his, for that matter, were so closely watched. So maybe John had gotten it wrong, and Jesus was just one more failed Messiah. He certainly showed no signs of being prepared to drive out the wicked rulers of Israel or the Romans. And so... As he wanders, John calls two of his disciples to him and he sends them to Jesus with the question Are you the one we're looking for? Are you the one who is coming? Or should we look for somebody else to trust in? Do we look for another? So how does Jesus answer the question of John's representatives? Well, he doesn't run through his resume. He doesn't tell John all uh, the, the details of where he's been and what he's done. He doesn't send word to remind John of the words that they had exchanged at his baptism. Instead... He first invites John's messengers to look around. Talk to the people who are following me, Jesus says. Look at these folks who have gathered in response to the word that I've proclaimed. Find out what's going on in this community. And what was going on around Jesus was pretty impressive. We've followed it if we've read the gospel according to Matthew to this point. We have heard Jesus climb up the mountain and deliver the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. We have seen Jesus heal folks oppressed with all sorts of diseases and afflictions in chapters 8 and 9. We have seen him call together 12 special followers and send them out on mission. In chapter 10, he tells them in chapter 10 in verse 8, You go out now. You cure the sick. You raise the dead. You cleanse the lepers. You cast out demons. It's pretty eye-opening stuff. And so Jesus says, look around, see what's going on in this community who have responded to the call of the kingdom of God and and see what you make of it. And then he invites them to look it up. The language that Jesus uses, uses in his answer, the imagery that he draws on, comes from the prophets of the Old Testament, especially from the book of Isaiah. There are several passages that Jesus' words echo. But the key passage, I think, is found in Isaiah chapter 35, where the prophet looks forward to a day when, in his words, the wilderness and the dry land will be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. A highway shall be there and it shall be called the holy way. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall fly away. That, Jesus suggests, is the kind of promise from scripture that's coming true in this community that is formed around his words and his action. And he encourages these representatives of John to look it up and see if this isn't the kind of thing, the kind of gift, that God has prepared his people to receive throughout their history. Well, you and I may have looked around a bit, and we may have looked it up some. And we may wonder... Why we don't see, in our experience, the same kinds of dramatic things that Jesus and Isaiah talk about in theirs. We may have wondered why so many Christians today don't experience these sorts of marvels that we read about in the apostolic age. I used to have a perfect answer for that question. Um, In fact, the answer had something to do with what the Apostle Paul says about that which is perfect in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I see a recognition on a face or two. Some of you may have uh, experienced that answer before. I'm afraid that as the years have passed, I've become less and less certain about the meaning of that passage or exactly what it tells us about the Spirit of God or why God seems to work differently in different times and places. In general, I find it funny that I used to understand so much more about the Bible before I sat down and read it seriously or tried to. I'm I'm sorry if that's unsatisfying to hear. Sometimes it's unsatisfying to me too. But in my better and more spiritual moments, which come every so often... Um, I like to think that it serves as a reminder that the church's faith, our faith as Christians, isn't in our ability to understand Scripture. Our faith is in the living God, to whom Scripture bears witness, who is always ready to surprise us when we think we have Him all figured out. Still, we might note as a as a partial and an unsatisfactory answer to that question. But some Christians in every age and in our age too have experienced healing and other wonders that are not easily explained except by the power of God. If you're skeptical of preachers who televise healing services in which they invite folks in the congregation to throw their crutches down and come forward, I'll share your skepticism. But we all know of brothers or sisters given little or no hope of recovery who find the second round of tests clear, the heart strengthened, the limbs restored. And the most hardened rationalist must realize that it's going well beyond the evidence to say with as much confidence as some do that God's hand is nowhere in healing like that. And so the church throughout its history has prayed for the healing of those who are sick as Andrew led us in prayer this morning as you've prayed for me in this past year. Philip Jenkins chronicles the rise of Christianity in Asia and Africa and Latin America. And one of the things that he observes in those places is that signs and wonders are a big part of life in churches there. Maybe it's not beyond reason to suggest that Christians who are more open to the healing power of God more readily receive it. But there's another point here. For all of us who live in this scientific age, whether we know it or not, are bewitched by the 18th century. Um, I saw recently on Facebook, so I know it's true, uh, the, the comment, I think most people are ambivalent about the modern world. We like air conditioning, but we hate our jobs. There's some truth in that, maybe. Think about it that might be funny I guess it's too early in the morning (laughs) we'll just move on we are I think bewitched by the 18th century and when the Bible speaks of miracle we suppose that it's talking only or always about something that runs counter to what we take the laws of nature to be and in that respect Jesus answer is striking Jesus invites John's disciples not to see and hear only things that we would call miracles. He invites them to see wonders that he regards as greater than that. At the end of Jesus' list, at the climax of his resume of Christian evidences, on top of the healing of the blind and the lame, in addition to the cleansing of the leper, Beyond even the raising of the dead, Jesus tells John's disciples, the poor have good news preached to them in this place among these people. And for all the church's failures, in our age, as in every age, for all its own blindness and deafness and weakness... Never in the history of the Christian church has the echo of that proclamation died out. The poor have good news preached to them in this community. And those who don't find what they need in this life, and that's all of us, finally, even if some of us for a while have the resources to disguise it, it, to, to hide that fact from others, To hide it from ourselves. But to all of us who don't find what we need in this life is proclaimed the good news that God has made provision for all that we ultimately need in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his son. And even if we never see the blind literally regain their sight, or the deaf they're hearing at the name of Christ. We have some experience, don't we, of people who are blind to the world, to others, and to their place in God's purposes, being granted a vision of that purpose through the preaching of the gospel. Haven't we seen people deaf to the call of Christ, given ears to hear the cries for help of those around them, Through the ministry of the church, through the ministry of this church, haven't our eyes sometimes been opened? Haven't our ears sometimes been unstopped? Hasn't our tongue been loose to speak a word in the name of Christ to someone in need of encouragement? There are, as the British theologian Austin Ferrer put it in one of his sermons, there are more people shuffling about on two limbs, maimed from within in our world, than there are people whose bodies don't permit them to walk. And the gospel often gives them, gives us, the power to go forward. And the poor, as Christ himself said, are always with us both the poor in things and those afflicted with poverty of spirit. And so we stand always in need of the word of grace that comes to us in the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. It was true in the days of Jesus' flesh as well. And so Jesus invites John's representatives to look around and to look it up And finally, he invites them to look ahead, to look at what is coming. All our roads lead somewhere. In fact, as long as the Lord tarries, all our roads lead to the same place. We read about that destination for John in chapter 14 of Matthew's Gospel. As his disciples come to collect his body from prison, following his execution, and lay it in a grave. Before we reach that destination, before our friends and our family and those we love reach it, we're invited, we're challenged by the words of the gospel to come to terms with Jesus. There is an old gospel song that I didn't think to ask Darren to lead this morning. What will you do with Jesus? It is the question for everyone who hears the word of the gospel to ponder and to respond to. And so Jesus tells John's John's emissaries, blessed is the one who takes no offense at me. Blessed is the one who isn't repelled, by the words that I speak in God's name, but is is drawn to them. Blessed is the one who sees in this unlikely ministry and the unlikely community of followers that it's gathered folks unlikely to be tasked to speak for God, but here we are. Blessed is the one who takes no offense at me or at the message entrusted to me And to my disciples. The one who does take offense, the one who does turn away from Jesus, or turn away from the message that he's entrusted us to speak in his name, is refusing the very gift of God, the most precious gift that God has to offer. He has nothing greater to give us than himself and the eternal life that fellowship with God grants to us created in his image. There's nothing more he can do. If we refuse that gift, he has nothing further for us. Jesus meets us today with the same invitation that he extended to John and to his followers. He invites us to look around to see what's going on in the life of his church and in the world where his spirit is at work. He invites us to see what his ministers are being empowered to accomplish for the blind and the lame and the poor. He invites us to look it up. He invites us to take up the scriptures and learn about God's will to save and see if we can't discern in this unlikely place how God is continuing the ministry of Jesus in the ministry of his disciples. And he invites us to look ahead to see the work that God proposes to complete in us and in all his followers and to commit ourselves to his purpose, to allow ourselves to be drawn to Jesus and not driven from him. The risen Christ still works wonders for those who submit themselves to his word And who open themselves to the spirit that he pours out. And who allow him to mold us into into instruments of his grace. We've seen wonders like that in the lives of others. Some of us have been on the receiving end of that kind of power from time to time in fits and starts, perhaps. When the church comes together around the table of the Lord in Jesus' name... We are reminded of the testimony of scripture, the word of Jesus himself, that he is the one whom God has sent to draw us to him. We do not look for any other. He looks for us now to follow him. We have that invitation and that privilege, as we always do at this table, as we stand to sing.